If you've been tempted to uh, close your Bibles, keep it open. Genesis 4, if you've been following on the screen, here is the time to crack it open. Page 6 of the regulation print. Um, As we come to God's Word, I know we've given thanks for His Word, but let's come before Him and ask for Him to work in our hearts and minds. Lord and Father, uh, we thank and praise You that You are a God who lives and speaks. Uh, We thank You uh, that not only do You allow us to call on Your name, but you speak to us that we might know you, know the God who we call to. And we pray, Father, that you would reveal again uh, what you are like, uh, that in knowing you better it would both challenge but also comfort us. Uh, We pray that your spirit would work, that as we look at your word we would become more and more like uh, your son, the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, there's a uh, British comedy duo, Mitchell and Webb, and uh, for those who know them, they've got a particular sketch where they play, play two SS officers. Uh, there's Webb. Um, and one's got doubts about their uniforms. Uh, so they've got the classic SS uniform, and you can see uh, on the uh, cap there's a little skull in the centre. And they recognise this is not the enemy's propaganda. This is not how the enemy are painting them as, as those. They designed their own uniforms. They chose their own symbols. This is who they are and what they represent. And and the officer with his doubts asks the question of the other. He asks, are we the baddies? Are we the baddies? Uh, It is difficult sometimes, isn't it, to face the reality of our sin. We all kind of like to think, oh, we're the goodies. You know, the problem is the people over there. And it is uncomfortable. But we should recognise something of ourselves, as Margaret read from Genesis 4 in the character of Cain. Uh, 4 verse 9, notice his deflection. Am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, Cain won't face the reality of his sin even when he's confronted with it. Uh, like it or not, we can't avoid sin's existence and um, you, me, we, we can't avoid sin's reality inside in here. Uh, realize some of us don't want to face it because it seems unnecessary. We don't need to have this talk. Uh, we don't think we're all that bad. Yeah, we're not the baddies. Uh, As Genesis 4 was read, you may have felt a little disconnected, and not just because the names are unusual. You just felt disconnected because, you know, you're confident. You'd never kill your brother. Um, You've gotten close in years gone by, but it's never happened. You know, it's not going to happen now. Um, You're not going to outright lie to God. You're not going to boast like Lamech and go, I'm untouchable. Can I say, if you can't recognise a Cain within, you are in danger. And it is vital you listen to God's warning today. But there are other of us here who don't want to face the reality of sin within because it just seems too confronting, too hard, too painful. Uh, You don't just recognise, as we read through a cane within, you see a lamech inside. You carry this kind of weight of moral failure that is so heavy that you fear if you look too closely at what you're like, it will crush you. You know, so 4 verse 7, when you hear God speak and say, if you do what's right, will you not be accepted? And you hear that line and you just kind of despair and crumble. See, if you see a Cain or even more a Lamech inside, keep listening, for God is present and he is speaking and he is acting that he might lift the burden of sin from your life. So key truth, as God speaks to each of our hearts, as we recognise the reality that we are the baddies, um, here's the key truth, sin desires you, but grace masters or grace rules over sin. 
These opening chapters of Genesis are foundational, not just for the Bible but for our understanding of life. Uh, And chapter 4, what we see as we skim over the surface, the blessings and curses of the first three chapters... um, grow and flourish and this is our world this is the world we live we live outside eden's perfection so we live in this world where joy and pain grow together that's what we see in chapter four blessing flourishes do you notice that like children are born and flocks are kept land is farmed cities are built industry expands music is invented how great is that culture human rule and relationships bloom but at the same time the curse grows So the conflict that uh, escalates from one broken family to this uh, guy, Lamech, who boasts about killing a stranger. And this is our world. Uh, We need to keep remembering that. You know, this world where blessing and pain grow together. Um, You know, COVID, we know, produced great innovation with the vaccine, acts of tremendous love, frontline workers. At the same time, the first year of COVID saw more billionaires produced in those years than in years previous, as many lost their work. Genesis 4 is our world, this dual rhythm constantly going of blessing and curse growing together. And that tension of blessing and curse growing together is not just big scale, it's inside here, it's in us all. Uh, And that central truth, sin desires you, but grace rules over, masters sin. And there are two parts of this truth we're going to look at today. Uh, The first, I warn you, is much longer. First, sin desires you. Sin wants control of your heart. So verse 7, God warns Cain, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. You must master it. God personifies sin there as Cain's greatest enemy. And that sin desires Cain. Uh, It's the same word for uh, for desire as used in 3 verse 16, um, which describes that struggle between men and women. So desire, both there and here, means control or domination or possession. Sin wants to own Cain. And just as sin wants to own you and me, And Cain's struggle and his failure shines a light, gives us insight into our own struggle. Uh, We we see, firstly, sin is a heart issue. Sin controls when you use rather than delight in God. So 4 verse 3, Cain and Abel both come to the Lord with an offering. Uh, This is a time before the sacrificial system uh, for sin has been established. So it is not a guilt offering, it is a thank offering. It is an offering you bring to God in response to the fact that he has been good to you and you just love him, he's provided. It's just an expression of delight. And the Lord, in verse 4, looks with favour on Abel's, but not, in verse 5, with favour on Cain's. And the difference is a small one, it's a subtle one, but it shows their hearts. So in verse 3, Cain brings some of the fruit of the soil. He brings a safe offering. Uh, Cain has looked at all the profit that he has made that year, all the harvest that has been brought in, and he has decided what he can comfortably give God. He doesn't bring from the first fruits of the soil. Abel's offering, verse 4, is risky. He brings fat from the firstborn. Um, He's sacrificed from the first of the new flock rather than waiting to see if all of the flock, all the animals were going to be safely born. So here's the risk. He could be giving 10% or he could be giving 90%. He can't be sure it hasn't all come in. So Hebrews 13, uh, sorry, Hebrews 11 verse 3 uh, tells us that by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. By faith. 
It is not a noticeable difference in action. It is an attitude of the heart. Um, Abel offers to God in faith, by faith, with complete trust, with a joyful abandon that God is worth his best, that God will care for him, whereas Cain makes a calculated offering, giving God what he has to. And sin is a heart issue. It's how you view, how you relate to God more than the actions that other people around you will observe. Uh, Tim Keller writes this. Uh, There are only two reasons you can possibly bring an offering to God. Only two reasons to put money in the plate. Uh, One is to give God an offering in response to salvation, in gratitude. The other reason is to do it as a means for salvation, a way of getting God to bless you, a way of getting God to reward you and answer your prayers and take you to heaven. Only two possible reasons. Even in that rudimentary form that the gospel existed in Abel's mind, Abel in some way was putting his trust in God's promise of salvation. See, sin is a heart issue. And what sin wants you to do constantly is is look at the outside, look at the externals, not look at your motives. Sin wants you focused on your actions, your good works. Sin wants you keeping a tally and a record of how you've been blessed in comparison to others. And Cain's heart is revealed in his response. Um, He has not fooled God. He has not forced God to bless him. And so he is angry. His face is downcast in verse 5. You know that sin controls you by your response when things don't go your way. Uh, To finish Keller's observation, the way you know you're a sinner saved by grace or a Cain saved by works is that when God doesn't let life go the way you think it ought to go, When God is not blessing you and prospering you and having things go well, a Cain gets absolutely furious. So sin desires you. It wants to misdirect your your passion, your longing from delighting in God to using God. And with that, this moment flicks another light on sin. We also see sin deceives about its danger. Sin controls you when you downplay the threat. So verse 7 The Lord warns that sin is crouching. The word used there for crouching is one normally reserved for used for an animal. Um, Like a tiger in the shadows, it is coiled and ready to strike and it is dangerous. And like that crouching tiger, the reason it does it, it makes itself look smaller to go unobserved, minimise its threat until it's all too late. Sin is damaging Cain before he realises it. It is damaging his own soul even before it spills out to hurt others. So in verse 5 and 6, again, he's downcast, he's angry. You know, that first sin of trying to use God has produced a new sin of unjustified anger and is twisting his character. Uh, C.S. Lewis points out the danger of trying to draw a big distinction between the sins of the thought and the heart and the sins of action that can be seen and observed. He talks about and gives an example um, of how one man might be so placed that his anger sheds the blood of thousands and another is so placed that however angry he gets, he'll only be laughed at. There's two two people. They're both angry. They've both got the same issue on the inside, but only one of them's got the opportunity and the power to act on it in such a way that damages others. The other is kind of weak and feeble in a worldly way and so their anger just gets mocked and laughed at. But both are damaged. Uh, Lewis goes on. Each has done something to himself which, unless he repents, will make it harder for him to keep out of the rage next time he's tempted and will make the rage worse when he does fall into it. Each of them, if he seriously turns to God, can have the twist in the central man straightened out again. Each is, in the long run, doomed if he will not. 
The bigness or smallness of the thing seen from the outside is not really what matters. So Cain is angry and downcast. And before anyone else is hurt, before anyone else can even see it, his own soul is damaged. And sin will do the same to you when you hold on to that grudge, when you withhold kindness, when you feed your envy. And sin deceives you about the danger, but ultimately it will destroy. Um, Verse 8, the details are very spare, but Cain's anger spills over and he kills his brother. So what has begun with bad worship ends in death and murder. Um, It may not always be murder, but the ungodly heart will always damage others. As you hold them in contempt, as you hold someone, exclude them and you push them away and you refuse to give them your best. And that damage will not be hidden from the God who cares for all. So the Lord holds Cain to account. 4 verse 10, 4 verse 10, your your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So the God of justice, the God who sees all, stands for the victims of other sin. And he will hold sinners to account. In verse 11, uh, Cain himself is cursed. Um, In chapter 3, you'd remember the ground was cursed. It was frustrated in all that was made for. But, but here it is, Cain, the man himself, is cursed. He's, he's frustrated in everything he does. Uh, he is permanently disconnected from the land in verse 12. He's become this restless wanderer. So he can no longer kind of invest in what he was made for, the land connected to creation. He, he, he's afraid now of other people. He's a, he's a stranger to everyone. What might they do to him? He's disconnected from people. And most of all, verse 16 There he is cast from the Lord's presence, going east and further east of Eden. He's further and further away from God. And his sin desires you and it deceives you about its danger. It crouches. You know, like that that tiger coiling up, it looks smaller than it is, but sin is deadly. And when you minimise it, it will control you and it will damage those around you and ultimately will destroy you. A third aspect we see, sin unchecked hardens your heart. It controls when left unchallenged. So the Lord sees Cain is downcast. And in verse 6 and verse 7, the Lord counsels Cain, but Cain will not listen. And so after the murder, the Lord again goes to Cain, just as he had with Adam and Eve going to, and they blame shifted, and Cain is simply dismissive. You know, am I my brother's keeper? This sense of, what's this got to do with me? He is callous and uncaring and it flows through his family line. So remember those curses and blessings that are growing hand in hand. Uh, People are moving further and further from the Lord's guidance as the chapter goes on. So culture advances but so does sin. In verse 19 we meet Lamech and Lamech has no regard for God's design for marriage. He marries two women. So we see how societies move from just doing God's way badly to not even trying to do God's way. Uh, And the disdain he has for these women, using them, is symptomatic of the way he treats everyone. So in verse 23, we're told uh, a young man wounds or injures him. Some translations have just insults him. And his response is not just kind of, oh, I'll get justice, I'll make this fair. He goes way over the top. He blows the situation up. He gets vengeance. And rather than remorse, he boasts of the murder, how easy it was for him. What a man of power. Unchecked sin grows. And the sign that sin controls you is you protect your sin. John Piper puts it this way. What would it be like for any of us to be like Cain? It would mean that any time some weakness or bad habit in our lives is exposed, 
by contrast to someone else's goodness, instead of dealing with the weakness or the bad habit, we keep away from those whose lives make us feel defective. We don't kill them, we avoid them. Or worse, we find ways to criticise them, so to neutralise the part of their life that was making us feel convicted. We feel like the best way to nullify someone's good point is to draw attention to his bad point, and so we protect ourselves from whatever good he might be for us. See, this is what sin wants. Sin wants to control your heart. It desires you. It wants to dominate you. And, and what God is doing to us this afternoon, he is inviting us to do something different to recognise the sin within, to not keep downplaying or minimising or or defending ourselves against it. No, God is inviting you to unmask the sin in your heart, to throw it wide open, unmask the sin in your heart. John 3 says um, sin avoids God's light, that sin thrives in the dark and sin doesn't want to come out into that light because it will die when it's exposed. Uh, In 1914, the steamship Monroe, uh, there it is there, was rammed by a merchant vessel, the Nantucket, in thick fog off uh, the US coast of Virginia. And the Monroe sank and 41 sailors lost their lives. Uh, The Nantucket's captain was charged and during the trial it was found that uh, the Monroe's captain, the captain of that particular ship, was using a faulty compass. And his compass deviated as much as two degrees In the year that he had captained that ship, it was never fixed because it did the job okay until the day didn't do the job okay and the faulty compass lost 41 lives. And after the trial, the two captains uh, met and they clasped hands and they sobbed on each other's shoulders and it's this little picture of the consequence of even a small misorientation, the damage it can do, left unchecked, this tiny little detail. See, small as sin might seem, that that grudge, that envy, that lack of compassion wants control. And unchecked, that small fault will destroy you. So unmask it in your heart, expose it to God's light, bring it out. But we need to do more than that. Because just bringing it out, that could just crush you and that's not enough. that, That would be devastating. Just to recognise, yes, I am a baddie and leave you in that state, that would be disastrous. And so the second and shorter point, grace masters sin. God does what you can't. Unmasking sin is not enough. It will just make you feel despair. No, no, we need to expose it that we might bring it to the Lord because he can do something about it. God's grace runs through this chapter. Even as Abel's blood cries out from the ground, um, like he did with Adam and Eve, the Lord comes and he questions Cain in verse 6 and again in verse 9, not to interrogate but to counsel, to give them the opportunity to, to learn and turn. And this is what our God is like, that even in judgment he is gracious. So in verse 15, he marks Cain as protected, that he would not be killed, he would not pay the full extent of the consequence of his sin. And better still, the end of the chapter, verse 25, God gives hope to every one of us who struggles with our sin. Another son is born. An answer to the cry of Abel's blood. Seth is born. Seth means granted. Seth is God's gift of life in place of what sin and death took. Uh, The seventh generation from Cain's line is Lamech. Lamech, the one who boasts in death. And the seventh generation from Seth's line, chapter 5, verse 24, is Enoch. And Enoch 
in 5 verse 24 walks with the Lord and is taken away. Enoch evades death because he has fellowship with the Lord. And from Seth's line, God grants an even greater gift, Jesus, the Lord of life, because Enoch was one man who avoided death. Um, Jesus beat death for all who will trust him. Uh, Hebrews 12 verse 24 says that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cries for justice. So the God of righteousness cannot ignore it. Uh, And in a word of comfort for everyone who has suffered, God does not turn a blind eye to sin. There will be justice one day. But Abel's blood cries out. But, But even those who have been victims are also perpetrators. You've been wronged, but you've also wronged others. And Abel's blood cries justice against us. But Jesus' blood speaks a better word. Uh, Jesus' blood speaks justice for us. So when Jesus dies on the cross, as we're going to remember and celebrate a little later on, that is sufficient to pay for all your sins and mine, the whole world's sins. Um, But like Abel's, Jesus' innocent blood cries for justice, but not for himself, but for us. And right now, if you can imagine, Jesus stands before the Father saying something a little like this in intercession. He says something like, Father, your law demands justice. And these people here are sinners, they are the baddies. The wages of sin is death, but for all those who trust in me, I have paid for it. And there is my blood crying out for justice. And justice says a debt cannot be paid twice. And so justice demands you don't condemn them. Not my brothers and sisters. Abel's blood cried for justice against Cain, against you and me, but Jesus' blood cries justice for everyone who trusts him, for you and for me. And so it's not enough to just unmask sin. We've got to go. Um, we, we, we need the God who can do what we can't. We need grace to overrule sin in our life. And so a simple response, when you, when you recognise, when you admit, when you bring out sin, here's a simple response, call on the Lord. Call on the Lord. Uh, it finishes, Genesis 4, right at the end there. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Uh, whether it's a, a response to the pain of life with men like Lamech or a response to the hope of this baby Seth, people start calling on the name of the Lord. That expression is used throughout the Old Testament, but one particularly evocative and helpful one, Isaiah 64 verse 7. Isaiah 64 verse 7, it parallels calling on the name of the Lord as taking hold of him. It's a way of explaining it. Uh, to call on the name of the Lord is to cling to him. As Ortland puts it beautifully, the Christian life boils down to two steps. Uh, Step one, go to Jesus. And step two, see step one. Beautiful description. Just go to Jesus. You don't have to deal with it all. You just cling to him and let his blood deal with it. Let him and his grace change and loosen the grip sin has on your heart. I finished by sharing Kayla's story. She called on the Lord and it broke sin in her life. She shares this. My anger and self-protectiveness have always been a part of me. From my childhood in a broken home, through college where I was a high achiever and into my marriage. I come into a new church, transformed how I see Jesus. I began to love him for the first time instead of feeling like a failure before him. I heard a sermon, The Healing of Anger, and it shocked me. For the first time in my life, I realised there was a cure for anger, and the cure is Jesus. She says she listened to the sermon over and over again, trying to understand it, and she says, I heard when God 
came to humanity, they crucified him. They were angry, just like I get angry. Yet when Jesus was on the cross, he did not leave. He could have fled, but he stayed. Even when the people that he came to save were so angry, they screamed, crucify him and betrayed him with a kiss. He took their anger without leaving. And she asks, how can be angry in the face of such great love? My fears of abandonment and failure are melting and as a result I can love differently. Instead of shutting down when somebody rejects me, I am learning to have compassion and empathy. My marriage has improved. I am more intimate. Uh, I have more intimate friends in the church than I've ever had before. I am able to serve those around me in need without my former hopelessness. I even love animals now, she says. My heart continues to heal and I am grateful. That is a testimony of the power of grace and how grace masters sin. If we'll only call on the Lord, cling to him and have his, his blood speak the better word over our life that we need. And in that moment, yes, it's difficult to face the reality of our sin, but recognising yourselves in Cain, it frees us to go and cling to him, cling to Christ. For sin desires you, but grace masters sin. Let me pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you that you see the depth of our sin far more clearly than we do and in your kindness and mercy you choose to love us and you love us at great cost with the gift of your son father we realize we sin help us to face it with the comfort of grace and may the power of grace and christ's love for us break sin's control in our lives in jesus name we pray amen